0: There's a well-known hymn entitled, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, Born a Child and Yet a King, From Our Fears and Sins Release Us, Let Us Find Our Rest in Thee, Israel's Strength and Consolation, Hope of All the Earth Thou Art, Dear Desire of Every Nation, Joy of Every Longing Heart. Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, The Joy of Every Longing Heart. There was a sense of longing in the hearts of many people when Christ came. We are introduced to two such people in the book of Luke. There is a man named Simeon, and it says in Luke chapter 2 this about uh, this man, Simeon. It says that he had been promised that he would see the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's anointed, or the Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took Christ in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation." That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, or the nations, and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him." And also in the same chapter, we're introduced to another person who longed for the coming Messiah, a woman named Anna, who was a prophetess who lived in the temple probably for several decades after her husband died, devoting herself to prayer and worship. And it says this, she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So, come thou long-expected Jesus, and yet, we're introduced in the passage we'll look at this morning, in Matthew 2, to some ch- chief priests and some scribes who knew the prophecies, who knew the predictions about the coming of Christ, who knew where he would be born, and yet they were indifferent. It's, it's astounding to me. This background we saw last week that some wise men came. From the east, probably 600 to 800 miles, probably 30 to 40 day trip at great expense. These magi who had a limited understanding of who Christ is or what he would do. And they started going around Jerusalem and they said, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And the scripture says that this statement troubled Herod and troubled all Jerusalem with him. Because Herod was a horrific, cutthroat, sycophantical man. And so Herod called in the chief priest and the scribes. He says, what's this about the king of the Jews? He says, where is he to be born? I said, oh, oh, great Herod. We can tell you where he's to be born. In in our book, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 in the Old Testament, it says he'll be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judea. Where the scripture says, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem in Judea. Eight miles from Jerusalem. That's where he's going to be born. That's where he it stopped. So it's astounding to me. There was no seeking after the Christ child. There was no urgency in their life. They just had this scholarly approach to understand here he is. Of course, you know the story here. It called in the wise men and said, find out where he's to be born and get me and I'll go and worship the king of the Jews with you. But they were warned in a dream that Herod was a nefarious man, so they went back home a different way. So, so we're going to look at the coming of Christ. Either evokes worship, indifference, or hostility. The, the, we saw what last week the wise men limited knowledge of Christ, and yet it says this. It says that they searched exceedingly for Christ, diligently, that they... Rejoiced with joy that was exceeding when they found him, and that they fell down and worshiped him, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were true worshipers with a limited knowledge of Christ. Had no idea he was the King of kings and Lord of lords. No idea that he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. They they, they had no idea. And so we come to group two and three this morning. First the scribes and the wise men. They were, just, they were, they were indifferent. They, they knew the prophecies. They knew it was going to be in Bethlehem of Judea, but they just were somewhat indifferent. There, there was no urgency in their lives. There was no seeking after the reality of Christ. And I, I just say to you with, with great earnestness, I hope, that be very, very careful about a faith that is a cultural faith and not a personal faith. Be very careful about a familial faith where you kind of slip into being a Christian because it's part of your family heritage. Be, be very, very careful about just some type of rudimentary understanding of the glory of Jesus. Make sure that you understand the wonder and the goodness of Christ. There is no urgency in the life of these men. There was no leaving of the water pot in John chapter 4. Christ is traveling through Samaria. Samaria is a region inhabited by Samaritans who were half-breeds and outcasts and not very embraced by the Jews. And so Christ is sitting at the well at noon, and he sends his men in to get some food. And while he's at the well, a woman comes, a Samaritan woman, to draw water. They usually come in the morning when they have a time of festive conversation, but she came in the middle of the day because she was an outcast, we think. Even among the Samaritans, she was an outcast. And so Christ, who is a Jew, speaks to a woman, which usually didn't happen, and definitely not a woman who is from Samaria. So she was astounded by that. And Christ asked her to give him a drink. And she had, they have this dialogue. And he says, he says whoever drinks of this water that will thirst again, but I will give him a water that will forever quench his thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she says, sir, give me this water. And he says, well, go call your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, that's true. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is someone you're not married to. What what do you say to that? How about those braves? Uh, You changed the subject. But she didn't. She said, sir, wow, I perceive that you're a prophet. Then they go into this discussion about where true worship happens. And and Jesus says, you know, the, the, the Jews worship rightly because salvation comes through the Jews, through the line of David. And she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. And he's called the Christ, the anointed one. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And the Bible says she left her water pot. And she went right into the village. And she told the people that listened to her, Come and see a man who's told me everything about myself. And they came out in mass and they heard the good news from the lips of Jesus. But see, there's urgency, there's leaving the water pot. When you encounter Christ, there is an urgency because of your brokenness. Or there's an urgency because you realize to get in the presence of Jesus means that there is healing and hope and glory. I think of Mark chapter 2, urgency. Mark chapter 2, a man is paralyzed. It's a great story. He has four buddies that, that hear about Jesus and that, that, that they don't understand all this about Jesus, but they've heard that he's able to heal people. And so they take their paralyzed buddy and they put him on a, 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 you know, a, a gurney, a pallet, and they four strong guys pick it up and they carry him and they get over the hill and they see the house where Jesus is speaking and you can't get close to the house. I mean, people are out hanging out the windows, they're in the yard, they're, they're all around the house hanging on every word. What do we do? And some enterprising friend says, well, there's a ladder. Let's put the ladder against the house. And let's let two guys climb up the ladder, tie the rope, pull our buddy up, and, and, and then we'll take the tile off of the roof and lower him in the presence of Jesus. So that's amazing. That's what they did. They, they lashed their friend to his bed. They pulled him up the ladder. They pulled back the tile, and they lowered him, and Jesus healed him. But, but again, th- th- there, was, there was urgency in their lives and I, I think there should be urgency when you consider the claims of Christ. Th- these scribes and Pharisees, chief priests just had a religious entrance which required no response. And I think of the, the, the promise of Matthew 11 where Jesus has these incredible words. He said this. He said, Starting in verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So you stop and you say, well, how do you know God's working in my heart? How do you know God is speaking to me? How do you know that God is revealing himself to me? By the power of Jesus, next verse, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle of heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So I I step back and I say from the text, how do I know that Jesus is working in my life? Answer, I'm weary and heavy laden. I have urgency in my life. How do I know I'm seeking Christ as a believer? There's a sense of urgency, and joy, but urgency. When I say, Lord, you're the vine, I'm a little twig branch, just apart from you, I can't pull it off. In the book of Hosea, in the Old Testament, God is judging the nation of Israel, and he says, but there's gonna be a day of, of restoration. The question, what will that look like? Chapter five, verse 15, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, they will earnestly seek me. In their urgency or distress, they'll seek me. But these religious people had no urgency. They knew the story, but that was it. So I was reading some material recently and talking about the importance of faith. There's a man named Daniel Bell who taught at Harvard for a long time, He's died now, died just a few years ago. He was um, a time literary supplement a few years ago. At the turn of the century, released the 50 most important books written in the second half of the 20th century. And Daniel Bell, professor at Harvard, had written two of those books, which is two more than I made on the list. It's very impressive. But Daniel Bell um, wrote a book entitled The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. He considered himself to be economically a socialist, but a conservative culturally. And Professor Bell says in this book, first part of the book, he says that, 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 that there will come a day when there will be a religious turning unto God by our culture. He predicted that. And he said this let me just, this is kind of Harvard language, but let me read part of it. Um, because it is constitutive part of man's consciousness. In other words, man was made to worship, he says. The cognitive search for the pattern of a general order of existence. We need to see that there is a a pattern to life, to, to exist and not fall into despair, he says. The effective need to establish rituals and to make such conceptions sacred. We need sacred traditions. The primordial sense for relatedness to some others. We need to be around people as an embodied Entity around other physical bodies. He so said that's just part of the fabric of who we are. And, and then he says this about, about this issue. He says there'll be a, a, a transcendent response to the self and, to, and the existential need to confront the finalities of suffering and death. And in other words, we need to know that there's something beyond this life to help us understand and embrace suffering and death. Now, here, here's the issue. I want you, I want you to understand this. Basically, he says, however you want to define God, as long as that fits your M.O. He says, I'm not going to define God. I'm going to just say there, there's a need to worship. There's a need for sacred rituals. There's a need for, 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 for embodied people being together. And that's what we're doing today. He says, you need that. But it's all about cultural cohesion. Second example. Uh, you tell to people all the time. This has become a very popular statement in our culture. I am not religious, but I am spiritual. And what that means for some people, not for everybody, is that I, I, I am a spiritual person, but I'm not religious because religion makes you define what you believe. Religion makes you stand up and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the apostles creed. So I don't want to define religion or become narrow, but, but, but I'm, I'm going to say quite frankly, quite openly, I am a spiritual person, but you, you can't define it. Hinduism. I've um, been to India several times. One of the most uh, unique experiences is visiting the Temple of Kali, in Calcutta, one of the chief Hindu temples. Now, in Hinduism, they say this is myth. So, um, In Hinduism, there is a powerful god of life and destruction named Shiva. Shiva marries a woman named uh, Sati. Sati's father doesn't like Shiva, his son-in-law. And so he has this big worship party experience and invites all the other gods. And at the party, he... Denounces Shiva and makes light of him. Uh, Sati is so consumed with angst and anguish that she throws herself on an open fire to show her devotion to her husband, which that's where they get widow burning from in in Hinduism, which is a horrific practice. When your husband dies, you're supposed to throw yourself on his burning corpse. It's called called Suti, named after her. Anyway, so in in the myth, uh, Shiva hears about this. And he comes in and he kills his father-in-law, but he doesn't want to take away all of his life. And so he takes the head of a goat and he puts it on his father-in-law's body. So he, his father-in-law is, 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 is the goat man. And then supposedly Shiva picked up the partially burned body of his dead wife, and he started dancing in great destructive power, and he started destroying everything because of his grief and his dancing. And the other gods, Vishnu and Brahma, come and they say, "Stop, stop, You're destroying things." So they take the body and, and they chop up the body, supposedly in 52 pieces, and they drop the pieces all over India, and wherever the body lands is a sacred spot. Now the temple in Calcutta is a place where the toes from her right foot supposedly landed. So get, it's a wild story. I mean, it's just, again, it's a myth. So, so if you go to that temple, you say, well, what, what, they said, we believe that the toes of, 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 of Sati fell here and made this temple. And, and I said, do you really believe that? Well, no, no. They said, no, no we, we We believe it's a wonderful myth that gives cohesion to Hindu society. Okay? It's, it's a wonderful myth. Or, or as you heard last week in the video, a woman from thailand who'd been converted to jesus said in thailand to be a thai is to be a buddhist it, it's it's all about familial heritage and it's all about cultural cohesion there has been a, a museum open called the museum of the bible the a great expense underwritten by the green family from hobby lobby thank god for the green family And it's supposed to be a very fine museum. It's gotten wonderful reviews. But in one journal I was reading, it says this about the opening of the Museum of the Bible in the middle of Washington, D.C. It says, for the first time since Gallup, the polling agency, began tracking this subject, more Americans now consider the Bible a book of fables, legends, and some history, and moral precepts recorded by men, close quote. Then believe it to be the literal word of God. The percentage of self-identified Christians has also fallen as well in our culture. In other words, people come to the Bible, in our culture by and large, and they see it as a, a book of fables and tales and stories that, that may give cultural cohesion. One story as rebuttal to all those statements. This woman, Flannery O'Connor. I really like Flannery O'Connor. She died relatively young of lupus from Milledgeville, Georgia. was very proud of being from Milledgeville, Georgia. And uh, she became a well-known writer in the 50s, was invited to Manhattan to receive an award. And while she was in Manhattan, uh, she was... Part of a few people invited to a lavish dinner, I think 20, 25 people, hosted by some very wealthy people um, because she received a literary award. And they're, they're sitting there in the opulence of Manhattan, and there's this lady from Millersville, Georgia, probably dressed like she's from Millersville, Georgia, and that they're having this great dinner. And then they enter into the conversation about faith and religion. Unknown to them, Fanny O'Connor was very committed uh, follower of Jesus, Roman Catholic, follower of Christ. And so as they spoke, the, the lady who was hosting it said, I don't, I don't believe the, Christ, the Christian message, but I occasionally go to church when I know that the host, the Lord's Supper, is being served because it, it just fills me with such meaning. It, it's, it's so significant to me. And Flannery O'Connor said she hadn't spoken all night and so she, she said, I spoke, and as I spoke, my voice cracked. And she said this, if it's just a symbol, then to hell with the whole thing. Now, that will put a quiet spin on your dinner party, I know. <laughs> but but just, just think about this. I mean, she's absolutely right. She's really giving a Reader's Digest version of the Apostle Paul's argument, 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, if Christ be not literally risen from the dead with a real physical body, we are lost in our sins. And so I look at the Christian faith, I look at the Christmas message, and I think it's blazing truth. It's, it's not cultural cohesion. It's not familial heritage only. It is not something that gives us a sense of therapeutic well-being in our existential woes. It's It's true. Jesus was really born of a virgin in a stable under a man named Herod. He suffered and was crucified under a man named Pontius Pilate. Historical facts. He died on the cross for our sins as a sin bearer, the son of God. He was raised from the dead, which authenticated every claim he ever made. He was seen by over 500 men. He ascended into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit, and he's praying for the church today, and one day he'll come again. That's it. It It's blazing truth. I think of the passage that we frequently read this time of the year John chapter 1 says this it's just a startlingly beautiful statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Blazing truth. So so the the indifference. The, The third response is Herod. Herod actively opposed the coming of Christ. He actively opposed the advent of Jesus. We, we read about his response in, again, Matthew chapter 2. It says that, that, verse 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years of age and under according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. We think probably thirty baby boys, murdered. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. He, he actively opposed and pushed back. See, I've got a little scale, something, something called the Herod response scale. The Herod response scale says this, if you have the power and the authority and the might and you're part of a worship movement, whether it's in North Korea or wherever, you will not brook any rival. Now, Herod killed his, three of his, his, uh, Brothers-in-law, he killed his, or sons, he killed his mother-in-law. He killed a wife. I mean, he was a bad dude. Anybody that challenged him. So so if you're part of a personality worship cult, you're not, gonna, you're not going to to, allow anybody to do that. But, but see, many of us, we don't have the power and the authority and the finances of a dictator. So, so we have a haired response that's just a bit different. And that is this. We just push back, we deny, we mock, we belittle. There's a French molecular biologist named Jacques Monod. He was well known in the 70s and 80s. He came from a godly home, but he with great passion rejected the faith of his father and his grandfather. And he wrote a book entitled Chance and Necessity. And some of the stuff in this book is just, just, it makes you want to weep. I'll just read a couple of statements. So this, this, this brilliant molecular biologist says that a man must at last wake out of his dream and then in doing so wake to his total solitude, his fundamental isolation. Now he must realize that he, like a gypsy, lives on the boundary of an alien world, a world that is deaf to his music. And indifferent to his hopes. I thought, wow, that, that's, that's tough stuff. Total solitude, fundamental isolation, deaf to his music, indifferent to his hopes. And then he says this. He says, this universe from now on without a master seems to him neither sterile nor futile. The struggle towards the summit itself is enough to fill the heart of man. And I thought that would work for me. Doesn't work for most people. You are total isolation, alone. Your music is deaf music. There's nothing to live for, nothing to die for. Most of us can't live there. So what we come, we do, we, we come to the precipice. And if you really live there, I think you, you at least to despair and suicide. I do. But we come to the precipice and we look over into the void and we say, I, I can't live there. And so we make idols. That's what we do the haired response, in part, is we make an idol something that will give us some type of meaning. And people make idols out of almost anything. There are people who make idols out of pets. They have all these pets and they have books on their pet. And they, they do this and they do that. And it's all about their pets. And um, it's wild. I, mean, I Sometimes I wonder where I'm. I, was, I, was gonna, I didn't tell this to the last crowd. I just remembered this. But. I was in a, a, a gym working out. Take that by faith, okay? Take it by faith. And, and there was a woman there with a basket going from weight machine to the weight machine. She was an attractive young woman, and she had a dog in the basket. And I thought, are you kidding me? That, that's beside the point. I like dogs, but come on. Anyway, so they, they, make a, they have all these pets, and they do this, and they do that. and, they, you know, and Listen, pets are better than pornography, in case you're wondering, if you're going to have an idol, some idols are better than other idols. Pets are better than pornography, okay? But they're still an idol. Some people make, make an idol out of their family. It's all about my kids and my grandkids and all we can do and do this and do that. And families must always come first. and Family, 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 which really is a gross violation of Scripture. Jesus destroys the supremacy of the family. Jesus says, I'm Lord. And so some people make a. a That's much better than making a habit or making an idol out of theft. A family's better idol than theft. Let's let's just say that. But but the thing about idols, idols don't satisfy. Idols don't meet your needs, ultimately. And the more you get involved in a idol, whatever it is, the more you enter into darkness. When everything supplants the supremacy of Jesus, you enter more and more into darkness. One of my favorite verses, Proverbs 4, 18 and 19. Uh, So so the the path of the righteous is like the the light of dawn. It grows brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. It's just amazing. When you walk in the light of Christ and you bow before the authority of the Scripture, uh, something happens. You're able able to see life more clearly. It's, It's a wonderful thing. I know people that are three times as smart as I will ever be in two lifetimes. And yet they stumble all the time. They go from broken relationship to broken relationship, from this to this to this. And they're incredibly gifted and very winsome and, and a blast to be around sometimes. But, but, but every, every situation they have to go back to the drawing board. This makes it simple. I tell people all the time, you know, the beauty, one of the beauties about being a Jesus follower is that it, it really says, tells you in this age of runaway sexuality, sex is for marriage between one man and one woman. Boom, that's it. Everything outside of that is against the mind and the law and the heart of God. Everything. It limits your choices in a glorious way. So, Herod's response is this I will put my eggs in this basket. I'm the man. So, you had worshipers, you had the indifference, and you had the active opposers represented by Herod. Two points. This Christmas, brothers and sisters, behold the glory of Jesus. Don't lose the wonder and grandeur of Christ. John Murray, taught at Westminster in Princeton, says this. It is possible for us to develop a certain kind of familiarity with the Bible so that we fail to appreciate the marvel of God's favor and mercy and wisdom. I'm going. Oh, I, I thought, Lord, don't don't let us, don't let me lose the joy and the celebration of saying Jesus Christ is Lord, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hell incarnate, deity. Don't don't lose the wonder. And, and part of that is is just an application. I, now, I like all these hymns, so please don't misunderstand me that I don't like these hymns. I like all these hymns, all of them. Uh, but, but most of us, when we learn a hymn, learn the first verse. So if the first verse gets bias, and the later verses are better than the first verse, it, 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 it's, it's not always good. For example, Silent Night is a wonderful hymn. Silent Night... It's hard to quote these hymns without singing them, so forgive me if I have to sing a little bit. You know what I mean? Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. R- round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. Okay, silent night. Now, th- 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 it gets better, but if that's the only verse you know of silent night, you're, you're kinda, it doesn't really preach the gospel. Or Away in the manger. Away in the manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the night sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Nothing great there, to be honest with you. So for every time, every one time you sing that, sing Joy to the World five times. Because Joy to the World comes out of the blocks preaching the gospel. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. The king. Then the third verse. Oh, the third verse is great theology. Oh, it is so good. Listen. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. And what does that mean? Let me tell you, what, no more let sins and sorrows grow, or thorns infest the ground. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, the Lord said, because of your sin, all humanity will, will, will struggle with pain. There'll be pain in childbearing, that's what he says, for, for, for the woman obviously. Uh, and, and for the man. I mean, I was there. It was painful for me too. No it was no sleep, all that breathing. <laughs> you know, you get hyperventilated, all that stuff. But, 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 but I take it by faith that it was more painful for my wife. So anyway, the pains in childbirth. And, and when you garden, there's going to be thorns and thistles, and there's going to be no seams. And, and it, it's just, but he says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. In other words, in Jesus, there is a restoration of grace and power and his smile in your life. It's not total, but, but it's substantial and it's real. And he just preaches. So, so for every one time, so I'm like five times Joy of the World. For every one time you sing, Mama, I saw Mama Kiss and Santa Claus, sing Joy of the World 500 times. I mean just 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 do that. I mean don't don't, don't my, my please let us not lose the beauty and grandeur and glory of the gospel because to see the coming of Jesus and his glory and his goodness opens up my heart to obedience. Number 2, the most glorious truth in the Bible Apart from justification by faith through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And just going to stop here and say, uh, a man who preached that and loved that died Thursday, R.C. Sproul. My friend and teacher, he preached here years ago, finished well. Thank you, R.C. But apart from... Justification by grace through faith, I think, outside of the discussion of the character and the grandeur of the triune God, the most glorious truth in the Bible is that my desire for joy and purpose and fulfillment and flourishing and God's worship and glorification merge. They merge. They're together. And so, I was reading Hebrews the other day, Hebrews 12, and there's a... Hebrews 12 is a hard verse. hard passage talks about God's discipline of His children. And, and it says this. For they, fathers, discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, Abba Father, God, disciplines us for our good. That we may share His holiness. Now, see this passage. There are... Many men and women here who were parented by wonderful fathers. There are many wonderful fathers on this property today. And no matter how glorious our earthly father was, they disciplined us as seemed best to them. In other words, the writer saying is, you know, there, there are sometimes that, that that dads over discipline, over correct, and sometimes they under correct, and sometimes they just blow it. Because we're fallen men, but Abba Father always disciplines us for our good, our well-being, our joy, our fulfillment. For our good, I don't have, that makes me want to sing and dance. God's worship and my purpose and fulfillment and flourishing meeting Jesus. We had a staff party this past week in our welcome center, which is really delightful. Our new welcome center. So, such a blessing. And I was able to talk to our staff and campus outreach and our PCA leadership and our staff. And I shared Psalm 72. I just was struck by it. Psalm 72 is a psalm. It's a prayer for the kings that would sit on the throne of David. And so it is a prayer that's fulfilled in Christ. And verse 16 says this. It says, may there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the fields." And I thought, yeah. God desires for us to Blossom under his hand, to flourish, to experience hope and purpose. And that, that is what, the, that's what we, we, we preach the Christmas message. God blesses his people. Now, very quickly, how to celebrate Christmas. Three things. I mentioned it last week. I mentioned it this week. Number one, do Advent with your family. Three candles this week. Next week, the fourth candle, and then on Christmas Eve, we do the Christ candle, Christmas Eve night. You just get together and you read a scripture, you maybe sing a hymn, you ask God to bless your marriage, your parenting, or your friends if you're single, and you invite the Holy Spirit to come in again in power. I mean, just, just think about the things of Christ. The second thing I said is that uh, give to Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon is a royal Christmas offering for Southern Baptist missionaries. We want 100% participation uh, to give to Lottie Moon. It is a wonderful thing to do. Many of us can give a lot of money. Also, as you give, year in giving is coming up. We're a little bit behind in our budget giving, so thank you for your faithfulness and continue to give. The third thing is to ask God to give you the ability to speak Christ to a non-believing friend or neighbor or coworker, or family member, hey, give them a book, write them a letter, make a phone call. Say, "Yeah, this is Christmas," and I know we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but just as as I'm getting older, you know, the Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. So, so there, there's going to be a day. So, how is it with you? Have you have you considered? The advent of Jesus and what that means. Uh, just, just want, I just love you, and care for you, and want you to know I'm praying for you. I mean, just speak His name. Care for people. The other thing I thought about that didn't list is that pray that God will make us very sensitive. It's, 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 it's wonderful to preach here. It's wonderful to, to to be able to be part of this this, this people. But I'll, I'll stand here and I'll look at it and I'll show people who have lost a loved one this year. A, a parent or a spouse, or in some cases, a child. And as we enjoy our Christmas, to pray for those who are hurting, pray for those who are experiencing a, a difficult Christmas. May, may God make us sensitive to the needs of people around us. All right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the goodness of Christ. We thank you that it is Good news of great joy for all people. I pray for people who are here today who have a cultural faith, not a saving faith. They have a family faith. It's not a saving faith. I pray that this Christmas they would repent of sin and trust in Christ and His work alone on the cross as their substitute. Uh, Lord, may the reality of Christmas ring in our lives and explode from our lips as we trust you. Uh, So come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. us. Let us find our life in thee. So, So come, Jesus, and bless us and minister and teach and move among us, Lord, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.